if you have your Bible, I would appreciate it if you take them and turn to Revelation. The message title for today is, Can Somebody Give Me a Hallelujah? Now, now let me just run that by you one more time. Can somebody give me a hallelujah? There we go. There we go. We are past the demons and the dungeons, and we're now starting to enter into some heavenly stuff that is going to be rather exciting for us. And uh, for those of us who are on God's side, we begin to get a glimpse into what's about to take place. We sang a song about that a little bit today, about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as we get ready to dive into the Word today, Father, we come before you because we recognize that it's through your Holy Spirit that you begin to enlighten us. And as we have gone through this, there have been so many things that, that have caused us just to stop and wonder at the greatness of our God. And now as we begin to enter into the scenes where the view changes from the destruction of earth and the end of humanity as we know it, now into this, this view of reward and heaven and the marriage supper of the Lamb and the hallelujahs and the worship, may our hearts be transported with John. As he saw and heard these things, may we experience just a little bit of what he saw and felt, I pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm wearing this shirt today because Syracuse won the first game, and I thought it's been a while since I've had a chance to, to celebrate with Syracuse, and so this is one of those things. But as you look at the Scripture today, for those of you who are sports fans, how many of you have ever had an occasion where there was a game that you wanted to watch, and so you rushed home to watch it, knowing that it started maybe just a few minutes before you get there, and you turn on the TV, and the crowd is going wild, and you don't know what you missed. You just know there's cheering going on. You're trying to determine, all right, is the cheering from my side, or is it from the other? Uh, what's happening here? Who just scored? What was the big play? And, and you're just looking at going, what did I miss? What did I miss? As we get into chapter 19 of Revelation, it very much is, is this celebration that we dive into the middle of it, and the people are cheering. And you kind of get to determine whether or not you're people of chapter 18, which are lamenting and they're weeping and they're crying, or your people of chapter 19, which are beginning to cheer and just this unbelievable celebration that's going on. So as we set this chapter up last week, at the end of chapter 18, we looked at the particular event of the fall of Babylon, which was the system of the world, which includes not only the end-time civilization, but the systems of which people were uh, making themselves rich. To the first century Christians, it would have meant the fall of Rome as they had known it. And so we begin to recognize that there are so many in our world today that are building their life on so many things that are not a foundation of God. And Revelation 18 tells us that if you are doing that, that what is going to happen is the whole systems of the world. Everything that is built not on God is going to collapse and it's going to crumble. And as a result of that, the chapter 18 people, the people of the beast, the people of the prostitute of Babylon, are going to just lament when their world falls apart. There was a quote that I used last week, and I want to repeat it this week, and I honestly, I honestly wish I knew who I could attribute this to, but it's this. Every God alternative in our life will ultimately victimize us. Every God alternative in our life will ultimately victimize us. In other words, if you are building your life on anything but a relationship with Jesus Christ, in the end it will turn on you. That which you thought would sustain you is going to turn on you. 
And so 17 and 18 of Revelation, we looked at the kind of the slow motion of the end of the movie. There was so much that was going on as God's wrath is being poured out that it, we, we, we just looked at different visions of what was happening there. We get to chapter 19, and instead of slow motion, we begin to see this preplay, or we get to see a program of what is coming that we've been kind of given throughout Scripture of things that are yet to happen. But we are to determine which crowd we are a part of as we get here. And so as Revelation begins, Revelation 19 begins, it is an advanced program, and we who have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life are celebrating. Did anybody here like to celebrate? Oh, come on. Are any of you good at cheering? I have seen some of you watch your kids at T-ball, which is not exciting at all. And I have seen you go crazy for your kids. I have seen children's soccer and seen, and then the parents, they come to church and it's, oh yeah, hallelujah, praise God. You know, there's this celebration that we are about to enter into that is phenomenal. And it is marked, and the first point that I'd like you to jot down, it's marked by hallelujah. In fact, the word hallelujah is sort of a universal word. I have had the privilege of preaching all over the world, and I have discovered that there's one word, regardless of what language you are at, that I can understand everywhere, and it is hallelujah. It is the universal word. Interesting thing about that word, it's really a part of two different Hebrew words, one of them being hallel, and the other is yah, which is short for Yahweh or Jehovah, as it was pronounced there. And so in the middle of this Old Testament, hallelujah or hallelujah would be praise the Lord. And it's used often in the Old Testament. However, in the Greek form, which is the New Testament was written in Greek, they put those words together and it became hallelujah. And the word hallelujah in the New Testament is used four times. And all four times are in the first eight verses of chapter 19 of Revelation. The only time you'll find it in the New Testament. And in other words, it's almost like God reserved this word for a place in the New Testament when the day is that he's going to come again and the church will have a reason to shout, Hallelujah! Jesus has come. And so we're given reasons why we will be saying hallelujah. In Revelation chapter 19, 1, it says this. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. Now, let me just remind you, it says roar, great multitude, shouting. Some of you mothers who have preschoolers, you, you're going to fit right into heaven. You hear roars and shouting all the time. It's, it's preparation for the first hallelujah in heaven. And they're shouting, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So the first hallelujah that we find in Scripture is an affirmation of God. It's telling God what he already knows about himself, and we are joining in. In fact, the essence of worship for us is that we know the character of God, and as such, we explain back to him why we are so grateful that his character is so, is so loving and, and so... We are acknowledging what he already knows about himself. In fact, when you affirm people, you tell them things that you like about them, and you do it not only to point it out to them, but also because you would like them to repeat that. And so you're affirming these behaviors in them so that they will continue to demonstrate them. 
And so in God, his qualities can be affirmed by the saints, by, by the angels. We see it all over in heaven. They are affirming the qualities of him. And God is aware of this. Do you know that God knows what his qualities are? It is not a surprise to him or a shock to him that we praise him for the qualities because he recognizes them. In fact, God is perfect, which means that he can neither deteriorate nor can he improve. He can neither deteriorate nor can he improve. God is perfect. Therefore, when we worship him and shout hallelujah to him, we are speaking to him about elements of his nature that he is aware of. And so he presents himself to us as Savior. And I want you to know this is the primary reason for those of you that may be guests or those of you that are watching online and you're wondering, why do you sing? Why do you worship? Why do you raise your hands? It's because, number one, I'm praising him because he saved my soul. I'm praising because I know what I was and I know now what I am because of my intersection with the grace of God at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, there have been the things in my life that have been erased under his grace that allows me to come before him as a brand new creature. That's why I praise. That's why I worship. So I praise him as Savior. We also worship him because he is all-powerful. He's affirmed for his glory. He's affirmed for being almighty. And so we sing and we sing and we say hallelujah with all of the saints in heaven because of his glory and the power that belong to God. There's a second hallelujah in Scripture here. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 19, it says, For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So now, the second hallelujah in Scripture is because we are affirming his justice. The Bible says that true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute or that city or that system by which nations sold themselves out to to grow rich. He has condemned it. He has judged it. And now we see that that punishment has fallen upon her and it says the smoke rises forever. In other words, her judgment doesn't end in a moment, but it continues forever and ever. Now we are living right now in a day of salvation. I'm so grateful today that we will be able to celebrate with the angels for what he is doing right now. In fact, the scripture tells us that when we get to the end of our services and wherever this is taking place nationwide or worldwide right now, when people respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, receive him as savior, it tells us there's a heavenly response, that the angels in heaven have a party. So great is the salvation of one of us that heaven is partying when people respond to that. And so living in this stage of grace and understanding that there's a celebration that happens right now when people come to the Lord, it's difficult for us to see the other side of that, that when this age of grace is over, that we likewise will celebrate at the judgment of God. But we do. So thankful will we be that everything that has kept us in bondage has been broken so grateful will we be that those that have persecuted and killed and martyred the church and his people will be judged we will celebrate with a hallelujah and there will be no argument with the justice of god he destroys those 
whose pleasure is in material things alone. He will destroy those who use their evil power to make an evil world to further their own life to their own joy and ends. He will judge those who have drunk the blood of the martyrs of his people and persecuted his people. And his judgment, the scripture said, is true and just. And the reason is because God sees us on the inside. How many of you have ever had the opportunity to be introduced to somebody that you misread them as you read the book on the outside? And the more you got to know them, you're going, woo, I, I really, I made an initial judgment of them that is completely wrong. I am so grateful that God sees what's on the inside. Because in the aspect of his judgment, there is this knowledge that he knows when he judges that he's got all the information. He knows the heart. He knows the mind. He has access to all the information. He alone has the power to judge with purity, without prejudice. He's got all of the wisdom to find the right judgment and to apply it. Nobody will be able to stand before God and say, you messed up. You messed up here. You have misjudged. Therefore, the saints in this hallelujah will be affirming his right and affirming him for his right justice of everybody. And he tells us, if we will be consistent in our faithfulness to him, we might have to carry a cross here, but we will have a crown there. And don't worry, there's coming a day when I will judge the world and I will not get it wrong. The third hallelujah then in Scripture is found in verse 4. It said the 24 elders, which we talked about back toward the beginning of the book of Revelation, and the four creatures, the four living creatures, fell down. Now, I, I don't know by now, but have you, every time we talk about the 24 elders and the creatures, they are always falling down. They stand up, they get worship, boom, they fall back down in the presence of the Lord. I, I can't wait to meet them because they have to be in the best shape of anybody in heaven. They are constantly up and down and up and down. So they have fallen down at the throne and they're crying out, amen, hallelujah. So here we have this image that the third hallelujah that's mentioned in scripture is joined by all of creation. Now you will recall when we introduced, we were introduced to the, the living creature that it had four faces. One like a lion, which represented the, the wild order king of the wild animals, another like an ox, which represented the domesticated animals. One had the face of a man, which was God's creation created in his image. And then the eagle, who was the king of the air. And so they represent to us the totality of creation. Now, we always have known, those of us that have been in scripture, that the rocks and the hills will cry out. We know that if we don't praise him, and I don't want a plant praising God for me. But we see the image here that even the animals and everything that's been created is going to join us as we get to this third hallelujah in Scripture. Now, I can't wait to hear what a dog barking sounds like as it's related to praising God. I can't wait to hear what it's like when everything God has created joins us. And so you have this threshold that's growing and growing as we get to each of these hallelujahs. And creation joins with us. And then we get to the fourth one. In verses 6 through 8, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. And I love John and the way he describes, this is what I heard, this is what I saw. Now he's describing, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, 
like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder. Do you notice how he's trying to describe the loudest things that he knows in the world? He's, he's running out of words to describe what he's hearing. And so then he just adds in, oh, by the way, they were shouting, hallelujah for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Now, for those of you that are conservative, for those of you that are quiet, for those of you that think, oh, hallelujah, that that's revival for you, you're going to be stunned. For those of you who long for peace and quiet, the first few million years in heaven probably are going to drive you a little nuts because there's a party going on. And we are in it. And there's this celebration that's going on, and John is giving this pre-program, and he's looking at this, and he's going, I, I can't believe it. He said, because really what happens is every hallelujah builds on the other one, and by the time you get to the fourth one, we are in unrestrained joy. This little white boy is going to dance and have rhythm when I get to heaven. And I don't care who watches. Because it will be unrestrained. You've never seen me unrestrained, thank God. Thank God for that. And I'm going to look in awe at some of you going, I didn't know you had that in you. But John is describing this scene where, have you ever just woke up in the morning and felt like, nothing to worry about today? Not very many of you have, I can tell. We're trying to figure out what this will be like for us to have this crescendo of hallelujahs taking place. And we're, we're yelling, hallelujah for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. And there's, there's some striking things about this, this scene of unrestricted joy that happens here. One of it is the interesting way that the translators have translated this verse that is different from the, originally, from the original the way it, was, it was, uh, could mean. And that is this. The scripture tells us, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. But in the original, it would be translated for the Lord God Almighty reigned, past tense. And you're saying, well, what's the difference in that? Listen to me. I know that it doesn't fit really well in the way that it, it, it's worded for us here, but here is, here's the implications for us. When we get to heaven... And when we start shouting for joy and yelling hallelujahs to the Lord, and we do this in the original, it's going to be a, a view back for us, recognizing that all this time that we have spent worrying, all this time that we have been in such agony and, and fear as to what's going to happen, oh Lord, I, I, I know that I'm supposed to put my trust in you and not be anxious for anything, but it seems to be my spiritual gift. How do we navigate all of that? There's going to come a point in time where we are going to look back and what he says to us is we will see the Lord God Almighty reigned. He's been in control the whole time. There's never been a moment in your life that he has not had everything. How many of you have ever said, and you have to reach a certain age to say this, if I knew then what I know now. This, this is the spiritual example of that. If I knew then... If I knew today what we will know in heaven, you take a deep breath. And you take another deep breath. And you'd open up your hands and you say, I surrender all. I surrender all. 
whatever it may be, because the Lord God Almighty reigned. Past tense, it's there. Meaning that while we are in this earthly existence, when we are going through the struggle, and when the early Christians were going through the iron fist of Caesar, and it didn't look like God was reigning, he reigned, he had it in control. And so the testimony of God's people as we get to this crescendo of hallelujah is that we will suddenly realize we didn't have anything to worry about all this time because he reigned. And interesting, the word for almighty here simply means that he is the one who holds all things in his grip. In other words, you are in his hand. He's got you. You say, but it doesn't feel like it. This is where you live by faith and not by sight, and you live by faith and not by feelings. He's got you in the grip of his hand, and someday you're going to sing hallelujah when you look back and he shows you the picture. You were not out of control. I reigned. I reigned. And so Revelation is one of those books that's written when the church is going through the worst amount of trouble, and it's in the time when God is saying, I know that there are moments when you don't feel my presence, but I want to transpose that situation and let you know there was never a moment that I didn't reign, never a moment I didn't hold you. I am the Lord God. I'm all-powerful, and I'm almighty, and I reigned through it all. And it tells us in verse 7 that then we break out in even more unrestrained joy, and we, we sing, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. There are two admonitions in this. It says rejoice and be glad. And it's interesting that they are found together because there's only one other verse in the New Testament where they are found together, and that is in Matthew 5, 12. And the context of that is this. Jesus was talking to his church about persecution and being persecuted. And he says rejoice and be glad during those times of persecution. Does that make any sense to any of you? Because it doesn't to me. Everything in my nature would rebel against that. But God says, you need to understand from my perspective that when this persecution comes, rejoice and be glad because it's a result of you getting through that, knowing I reign through it all, that you're going to be rewarded. So rejoice and be glad. And so Jesus puts these two words together. And we are told to rejoice and be glad for the wedding which has been anticipated. The wedding which we've been looking forward to is just about to start. And we are to give him glory and honor for everything. And so he says, everything I've talked about is just about here. How many of you feel we could see him soon? We could see him soon. And that leads us to the wedding. In verses 7 through 9, it states this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright, clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, in biblical days, a wedding had two parts to it, a betrothal and the actual wedding. And the betrothal and the wedding were separated by a period of time, even though that the two of them were considered husband and wife at the betrothal, but had not yet consummated or not yet lived together during that time. And so when it talks about the righteous acts of the church or those, the believers, we are in a period of time of being betrothed. We, we, from the moment we received Christ, are part of the bride of Christ. So our righteous acts are living 
in a dignified way, understanding that I am committed to him while I am here, waiting for him to come and get me, but I'm going to live in a righteous way, understanding my commitment has already been made to him as he has committed himself to me. And so when the time of betrothal is over, and, and this for you who remember Christmas time is the reason why Joseph and Mary were in such a dilemma. They were betrothed to be married. She was to be acting as if she was already married. And so when he found out that she'd become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he was in a dilemma because it appeared to him as if she had broken that vow. And then God speaks to him in a dream and says, hey, everything's okay. I know that this is different, but I'm in this. And so there's this, this way that we are to live as the church why do we want to be holy as he is holy? Because we are committed to him. I am anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb, but my spirit has been married to him from the moment that I allowed his blood to wash away my sin. And so it gives us a picture from culture that what happens is after the betrothal is over, on the wedding day, the groom comes to the bride's house, gets the bride, the procession then goes back to the house that he has prepared for her, and they have the wedding celebration, and there's this big feast. If there's food, you know we're going to be there. And in this picture, Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians, he said, this is why I have betrothed you as a pure virgin to Jesus, speaking to us as the church. He said, Christ the bridegroom has left this habitation in glory. He's come to the bride's house, to the earth, to the bride that has been betrothed to him. And after giving himself and becoming engaged to him, he goes back home and he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And then he's about to come and get us. And there's going to be a celebration. There's going to be the consummation of the marriage. In biblical times, the celebration was marked by a feast. And, and I've often thought about what is going to be served at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Whatever it is, I'm sure it's going to be your favorite. Actually, it may be stuff we've never eaten before. If it's green, I'm going to have a hard time with it, but I'll get over it. <laughs> and the Bible says the bride has made herself ready. Not only... The virtue of our justification as the bride came from him. He's the one that made us ready. He provides through Jesus Christ everything that we need to be able to, to be righteous in his sight. And then he says well, we're dressed in fine linen, white, pure, which are the righteous acts of the church, which is the way we live during this betrothal. And so for those of you that have ever been in a place where a big announcement was about to be made and your drummers, you know that there's this drum roll, and it gets everybody's attention. Something big is about to happen. And so it's as if the hallelujahs were the drum roll to everything going on. And suddenly we get to verse 11, and there is this wonderful description of the bridegroom. And it tells us he's a rider on a white horse. It said, I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wide press of his fury, the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Oh, come on. On his thigh, he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Somebody give me a hallelujah. Interesting enough, Jesus describes this scene back in the Gospels himself with his own words and in Luke chapter 21. He knew that this day was coming before he was crucified. And here's the way he described it in verses 26 through 28 of Luke. Men will faint from terror, apprehension on what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing nigh. Church, there's a reason that we should be looking up and looking at the eastern sky, because our redemption is drawing nigh. Everything that we have been waiting for is just about to come to pass. And we find ourselves in this strange juxtaposition right now. And Scripture leads us there to this. And it's this, because next week is Palm Sunday, and it's the time that we celebrate when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Next week, by the way, I'm going to be wrapping up the series on Revelation, so I'm not going to be talking about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. But it's the time that the world will celebrate that. And as he did, it said that he came in and he was weeping over them because they did not know the time of his visitation. So Jesus was weeping over the lost during that particular time. And here's, here's what's difficult for us because it's, we just can't grasp this here, but we see Jesus changing from weeping over the lost to becoming the judger of the lost. And here's how that fits us. We know in Scripture that it tells us that he is going to wipe away every tear from your eye. The implication of that is that in order for him to do that, he's going to have to wipe away some memories from us. There's some things that you carry with you in your mind that the Lord is going to remove those memories for you because if he didn't, you would live in heaven with regret. The other implication of that, and this is what's so hard for us, is that in that time when he takes those memories from you, he is also going to take away the memories from your mind of those that you loved that did not come to heaven. The redeemed will lose track of those that were unjust, won't remember them again. Those that are in judgment of God will never forget the redeemed. Part of their judgment will be remembering every opportunity they had to not be there and rejecting it. Their agony will be in all of the lost opportunities, but for the redeemed, God will, when he wipes away your tears, will wipe away from you the knowledge of those that you love that didn't come. And that's so hard for us. But we understand that Revelation is a book of contrasts. It's a contrast between heaven and earth. It's a contrast between the suffering of saints and, and the triumph that seems to be the wicked's until Jesus comes. The contrast between Babylon, the city of human systems, versus the new Jerusalem and the city of God. And, and in this contrast, we are given another one of two riders of horses on, or two riders on white horses. 
You will remember one of them was in Revelation chapter 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the rider in chapter 6 was on a white horse. They're not the same riders, and they are not the same horses. The beginning of the white horse rider in Revelation 6 initiated a final period of end-time travail that was bringing war and famine and death and distress. The rider in Revelation 19 is coming to end the distress, and it's a reminder to Christians that the one who starts something is not necessarily the one who's going to finish it. The power of the first rider in Revelation 6 was vastly inferior to the second rider. The power of the Antichrist figure, we recognize at the end, was nowhere near the power of the Lord Jesus Christ because in Revelation 6, the rider had one crown. But in Revelation 19, Jesus has many crowns and diadems representing that he is the ruler of all things. The first rider simply goes out with a quest for ruling. But the writer in Revelation 19 has the power to rule already by virtue of his nature and his being. He is ruling with an iron scepter with which to rule the nations. The writer in Revelation 6 had no name, represented by the numbers 666 that expressed humanity. But the writer in Revelation 19 is known. He is known in several ways. Number one, he's known as faithful and true. He can be depended upon in contrast to the Antichrist who is a fancy fake. He's faithful and true in contrast to the phoniness of the person who claimed that he was from God. But this one is known as the Word of God. He's known to himself with a name which cannot be known, it says which gives to us this description that no matter how long we are in heaven, how much we enjoy our time with Jesus, we are never going to fully understand everything about him. So deep are the depths of his nature and character that we will never be able to ability, have the ability to define or know him completely. The first writer in Revelation 6 brought trauma at the end time and war and famine but the writer in chapter 19 comes to bring life. It says that his robe was dipped in blood and on his thigh was written a name that no one knew. Can I, can I remind you of, of going way back to the, when we studied the church of Pergamum? How many of you still have your white stones that we talked about where it says that God is gonna give you a new name? He's gonna write it on a white stone and it's a name that represents his character, the what he sees of you, things that we don't even know about ourselves. If we were to give ourselves a name, who knows what we would write down? But he is going to give us a white stone with a new name written on it that only he knows and we don't even know yet. And so we have this image that names are important in heaven. And he comes and he says, he has got a name that has been given to us because of the blood that he shed to win our hearts. And he will come with an eternal kingdom. The first rider is a beast. The second one is a lamb who becomes the lion of the tribe of Judah, who becomes our savior and our king. And in Revelation 19, 19 through 21, it says this, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. There's a point that I do not want you to overlook here. I want you to notice the ease at Christ's final victory, the ease at which he wins this victory. Earlier in this study, I told you that Jesus has no opposite. The opposite of Satan is Michael the archangel. Michael defeated him. Jesus is perfect, has no opposite. And so it should not come as a surprise to us the ease at which he defeats everything that is left when he gets here. Revelation is telling us that God, the moment he chooses to act, will act completely and totally, and it will not be a hard battle. In fact, it's interesting because we are described, by the way, I believe that we will be coming with him. For those of you that don't, don't like to ride horses, you're going to really enjoy this one because you're in the air. And we are described as wearing bright linen, wedding clothes, which honestly is not exactly what I would choose if I was going into battle. Linen doesn't seem to be a type of material to block bullets and bombs. But I think it's fascinating that we get to ride with him, but none of us have weapons. Think about that. In fact, the only weapon Jesus needs is his word. And the reason that that's important to us is because it reminds us of something today. The battles that you're going through right now, the battle belongs to the Lord. I want you to repeat that to yourself. My battle belongs to the Lord. One more time. My battle belongs to the Lord. Because here at the Revelation 19, as the celebration is about to begin and we get to come back with him, we are dressed in white linen and he comes and the same God that spoke creation into existence is going to speak the armies against him out of existence. He'll just speak it. All he needs to do is say the word, so great is his power. Worship team, would you please come? He will put the clamps on Satan and his henchmen, on the Antichrist and the false prophet. He can do it any time he chooses, but he has chosen to relegate that to the very end, and then he easily dispatches them and wins this war with just a word. And so because Jesus is coming again, we are not helpless we are hopeful. We are not despairing. We are determined. We are not shaken. We are steady. We are not fearful. We are focused and at peace. We are not passive, but we are passionate about evangelism. We are not asleep. We are alert, and we're prayerful, and we're watching. We are not reckless. We are ready because we will not be distracted. Why? Because hallelujah, Jesus is coming again. Would you stand with me as we sing the song about the wedding?
blessed hope. Oh, hallelujah. Give him a round of applause. He's worthy this morning. He is worthy. And so for the altar call, for those of you that may be watching us live stream online, altar call simply means it's a meeting place with God. It means that we do something tangibly to engage what we have heard. And the Apostle Paul is giving us our altar call this morning from the words that are found in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, when he says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. In other words, there is nobody that is excluded from the opportunity of this altar call. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. In other words, we have been betrothed from the moment that we received him and we are to live in a way that honors that commitment to him. The blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I have not been able to get out of my mind the image all week of what it will be like for those who have been in services or watched online, things just like today, and yet you choose to say no. That if you reject this great grace of Jesus Christ because you have invested yourself in a system of the world that you believe will bring more fulfillment to you, you will never forget this moment for eternity while the believers will have the tears wiped from our eyes. You say, why are you laying it on so heavy? Because this is the most important decision you will ever make in eternity. This is it. And so what I would like you to do is just close your eyes for a moment. And if you are ready to make that decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ, you would like to know the joy of his salvation, your sins forgiven, be written in the Lamb's book of life, and know that your eternity just changed from that without Christ to joining with the hallelujah course in heaven. What I'm going to ask you to do is just to raise your hand. I'm going to agree with you, and then I'm going to pray for you as I'm looking around this room, looking into the overflow. This is your moment. Is there anyone this morning that says, today is my day? Yes, sir, I agree with you. Anyone else today? For those of you that are watching online, I pray that right now, if this is a decision that you are making, that you will, with your own lips, invite Jesus Christ to come into your life. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Tell him that you will elevate him to that place where he will not just be your savior. This is not just hell insurance, but he is to become your Lord and savior and that you will follow him. Yes, there may be difficult days here, but there's a victory coming. And so if you're watching this morning, would you please make that decision? And so, Father, we come before you today recognizing we still live in a time of grace. You still weep for the lost, but that day will come to an end and then we will celebrate your judgment. But as of today, we pray with that man that joined us here within our service, and I am praying for men and women that are watching us online right now that are saying with their own lips, yes, Jesus, I need a Savior. I need you in my life. I'm so hopeless and helpless without you. 
And that, Lord, this would be the beginning of a journey that we would have opportunity to connect with them or, or guide them to a church that proclaims the gospel where they could grow in you. But, Father, as we see the signs of the times, we recognize that the groaning that we experience now is just about to be replaced with unrestrained joy and praise and hallelujahs. But while there is yet time, we will share the word. While we are given yet another Easter, we will invite people. And I ask now, God, that you would fill us with your joy, that you would encourage our heart, that those that will leave here today will have an understanding that the battle they're going through belongs to the Lord and that he has reigned through this whole time. And we receive this in Jesus' name. And the church together said, amen.